Howdy, y'all, and welcome to this week's episode of Paul Julian and Friends, where I got a chance to sit down with Mr. Charles Cole. And man, what a story he has. Uh, He's given me some good business advice over the years and had a chance to meet him and spend some time with him here and there over the years, but finally got to sit down for over an hour and a half with him recently, and he's even more interesting (laughs) now than I thought beforehand. And one of the pieces of advice that I wanted to cover in the podcast but did not was he told me that in real estate you can make money on anything if you can manage it, and I think that is absolutely true. So I just wanted to throw that in there, and I hope you enjoy the episode with... Mr. Charles Cole, and I appreciate you listening. My grandfather on my dad's side fought in the Spanish-American War and was in the Philippines, and in the Philippines he caught an eye disease and lost one of his eyes. So the rest of his life he didn't have a left eye. It was a glass eye. Okay, and this was... Which person was this? How was this related to you? My dad's dad. Did you get to meet him, or did you oh, yeah, hear I knew, that story? I knew, no, I knew, I knew my grandparents okay. really well, but I never asked the question about their parents. Now, I think my son, uh, who's an attorney, did a, some research when he was in high school on ancestry, and believe it or not, I never went through it with him. When you interview someone, are you interested in history? Yes. You're not interested in politics? Zero politics is preferable. Politics to me is so boring. I mean, it's just... I can tell you what's interesting to me. A lot of what I did, my advanced degrees, I worked on economics. Mm -hmm. And I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank one time, which really, you know, it's the Federal Reserve Bank and the Supreme Court are the only two things the federal government doesn't control. If you told Powell at the Federal Reserve Bank, if the Congress said, you're not going to increase interest rates another 50 basis points, he'd tell you go climb a rope. But the problem is, like all of them, are appointed by political people. So they've got to have a political basis Mm -hmm. when they go into their job. But you can't let that interfere with the decision you're making now. I've read a little bit about Powell, and I keep up with what's going on. Is it tomorrow that there's another meeting? Uh, Yeah, and they're going up 50 basis points. That's what... For what, the sixth time, seventh time. And it's up, what, four or five points? Right. Well, that really... From the economic standpoint, I can't figure out why increasing the cost of money is going to reduce inflation. Right. <laughs> Looks to me like increasing the cost of money right. causes inflation to go up. Right. So I'm assuming what the what they're trying to do is to slow the economy down. Well, the economy doesn't need to be slowed down. Right. The economy needs to be boosted. I mean, that's really all they can do is raise and lower interest rates, more or less. I mean, no, they control all banks. Right. When I worked for Lending. the Federal Reserve Bank, we used to examine banks for a living. Mm-hmm. And then, then bankers were scared to death. That was the way it worked. 
is on Friday afternoon, four black cars pull up in front of a bank at four o'clock. Just a random bank? The or, bank we're going to examine okay, next that, week. This week's we, victim? Yeah. We'd pull up in front of there, we'd go in, we'd lock up all the books. And I mean, lock them up. Mm-hmm. And then Monday, we would go back and examine the bank. Well, now, the Federal Reserve calls the bank at least a month before they're going to examine it and tell them they're going to be there on a certain day. Okay. So, to me, that gives the bank the ability to go cover up any shiny, (laughs) skinny deals they're in. Right. If they want to write notes off, they can write them off before you get there. Yeah, that's like, and, it's not a pop test anymore. No, it's not a it's, pop test anymore. <laughs> pop quiz, whatever. No, it's not. Huh. Do you, what do you think about the way things are going today in December of 2022? Is the economy, inflation, the Fed? The, for the President of the United States not to know that spending more money causes higher inflation, is he would have flunked. Economics 101. The more money you spend as a government, the more money you give away to welfare and things. And I realize there are certain welfares that need money. Sure. But you don't need a situation where if you only make 50000 a year, it's cheaper for you to stay at home mm-hmm. and get the 50000 than it is for you to go to work. The reason it's cheaper is, number one, you don't have to get up and clean up and go to work. You don't have to drive to work. If you have a job, you may get health insurance from the company, or you may not. Well, if you're on welfare or something, you're going to get health insurance, prescriptions, everything you need. Mm -hmm. So what is the incentive for people to go to work? There are 7 million people between males, 7 million males in the United States between the age of 24 and 52 that do not do one day of work and haven't done it in a long time. If you look at the unemployment record, all 7 million of them could be employed today. There's that many jobs out there ready for them. They're, they're more than that. Yeah. They're like 15 million jobs available. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, the government says, well, we're going to solve that employment problem by opening immigration. Well, I've been, a, <laughs> I've been an employer of Mexicans a lot in my life because yeah. I've had dirt jobs, farm jobs, mm-hmm. a lot of companies that I've owned that that had to use Mexican labor. Well, if the Mexican that comes to me and wants a job does not have one or two things and I employ him, I've had the government come out and almost shut me down. Right. Because they either did not have a social security card Mm -hmm. or they didn't have a green card. Right. There's not a single immigrant coming across that border that has either social security card or a green card. So employers can't take them and employ them. Legally. Legally. Right. If you do, 
the government goes shuts you down and fine you. Mm-hmm. Now you tell me how the immigration of five million people that have come across the border, to say half of them are male. You can't tell me how those males can go to work. Now you know we all have had maids and things that we never ask about social security cards mm-hmm. or green cards. So there are a lot of the women that want to come across that want to go to work. Right. I think can get workable jobs, but it's beyond me to understand how the males are going to, unless if an immigrant comes across the border, and he's not a crook, he doesn't have a past record, he's really coming across because he has problems mm-hmm. in his country. I think the government should issue a temporary social security card or a green card to him. Right. Legitimate immigrant. Legitimate, so that. Instead of him having to go sleep on the streets and steal to get enough money to buy food, he has the ability to go to someone and say, here's my green card. Would you work me? Right. That makes a lot of sense it to does. me. Yeah. But our politicians have never been in business before. Right. They have always been on the dole. They just make money off the government, so they've never had... They, they'd never awaken at 4 a.m. in the morning and notice you've got 1,500 employees and payrolls tomorrow. Right. And you have enough money to pay 800 of them. Wow. I've had that happen really? a lot of times in my life. Really? And that, that gets your pulse up. I'll bet it does. You know, I've had my pulse up a little bit after last year and a half of retiring from the fire department and wondering there's been a lot of a lot of inflation and you know this you think and then this is gonna work and things will be like this and then it's totally different so then you've really been kicked around over that retirement plan yeah when hunter brought me when he first went to work there he told me what the retirement plan was yeah i said hunter you don't know what you're talking about (laughs) no one in their right mind would have ever agreed to such a retirement plan. But they've got actuaries. They've got charts that say it's so. When a fireman can bill up $4 million in a pension fund, now I don't care where you work. I bet the CEO of IBM may only have a $4 million retirement (laughs) plan. (laughs) But... And I realize firemen are important, sure. maybe they should, but I don't know how a city can possibly incur that much cost. Yeah, I agree. And that's, so, that's, well, I Hunter, nothing settled, nothing settled, and that's what you know. It's, it's scary about anything, you know. You, well, Hunter bought me his book, and I read it. I said, "You're right," but let me see what I do. I'd start a four hundred one plan, four hundred one B plan, the day you go into that. Yeah. Because you're not going to ever get that, and That's sure enough, he didn't. He's not going to get it. Yeah. But That's... the retirement plan is still fair. I think it's more fair for the city and more fair for the firemen now. Right. But it's not what they originally bargained for. Correct. And I think they should. I think the city should have to pay their penalty. Because they bargained for it. And yeah, it got out of hand with the uh, investment expectations and everything. You know, every chart you ever saw is just up. Uh, nothing ever went down. Yeah. So. 
had a friend one time. He was a doctor at SMU. But, uh, quit being a doctor at SMU. And he took over managing the teacher's retirement program. Mm-hmm. And he could only do it a year. <laughs> he just wore him out. And really? he got out of it. Really? Yeah. He was in charge of the teacher's retirement program. Wow. And that thing is almost like the fireman program. Really? It's way in excess of what it should be. So what should somebody like your grandson, Hunter, or my son, Shay, do? Uh, I, I know Shay, and I think Hunter, you know, they love their jobs and love getting to do what they do, but you've also got to have a contingency plan because, like you said, anytime you could go to bed thinking you've got this benefit coming and then you wake up tomorrow morning and they tell you you've got this or you've got nothing or you've got half of this so i'll tell you what what i did with hunter i told hunter as a fireman you've got a lot of excess time let's let's work some niche out in a business and i said i'll fund that business for a while for you Mm -hmm. well he decided real estate was what he wanted to do. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll find some houses and buy them. Well, the first one I bought, a kid came into my office one day and said, I've got to have $35,000 today. My mother passed away, and I've got to have $35,000 today. And I said, what kind of collateral do you have? He said, well, I have my mother's house, and I guess I'm going to have to sell it. I said, well, do you have the legal right to sell it? Yeah. Here's all the documentation. And he said, I said, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not going to pay you premium for the house, but I'll pay you 35000 today, and I'll go draw up a deed, a deed, you sign it, and I'll go record it. And I'm taking a risk that there's something behind it that's going to come back and bite me. Mm-hmm. But I'm willing to take that risk at that price. Right. So I got, I bought the house from him. Then he said, well, what about the furniture? I said, well, I'll give you 5000 extra for the furniture, which is worth two yeah. at most. So I gave him a little bit of a bonus there. We bought the house. Well, Hunter immediately started renting the house for 1500 a month. It was a $100,000 house. Yeah. I, I took advantage of the kid, and I'm sorry I did. But he had to have it. And sometimes, right, I you, I mean, sometimes you take adjustments in life. Right. I, I don't know that he would feel the same way. I mean, he only had a limited amount of opportunities for that 35000 if he needed it that day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't go to the bank. He, bank he just took a... Ch- he just took a chance on you or somebody like you being able to do that. So yeah. I, don't, uh, I think he got what he needed and wanted that day. But anyway, that got Hunter off where he was making a thousand a month or any cost in that. So that got a, enough of a kicker that if he had saved four or five months, he had the down payment for the second house. Right. And so he's been able to accumulate quite a few. And then he's done other businesses, too, that we've supported a little bit over the years. Right. Gutter business, cleaning fireplaces. But I told Hunter, 
The only way you ever get ahead in life is you take a risk, but it's a calculated risk. Everything that comes up is not a good risk. You've got to evaluate the risk, and if you can evaluate that risk, and you think you have a better advantage of getting ahead of the risk than getting behind it, take the risk. And then take steps to mitigate that risk as you can? You you remember that risk every day. The risk of payroll. (laughs) What business was that where you were laying awake at night and worried about making... in, In 1976, the government changed the Tax Act. And what it did is it allowed a person to go into a real estate type investment and take advantage of the taxis. Okay. And so I I put together a company where if you would come into my partnership, I would give you a two for one tax benefit the year you go in it. So if you're a fifty percent taxpayer, you're at a break even then. And then you have an ownership in that property till I sell it. Now the rules were uh, when we went into the property, the the limited partner had 99% of all property. The general partner, which was me, had 1%. But at a point where I had given you back the amount of money that you put in my investment, the partnership went to a 50-50. Well, it didn't take me long to figure out that every project I put together may have four properties in it, but there are two of them in there that's going to eventually get me 50-50. Okay. And that's what happened. All right. But I let, when I started out, it was real simple, but the thing just mushroomed on me. Because so, of the demand? Yes. I got you. In 76, I started that. By 79, I was raising between 50 and $100 million a year. Really? And spending it. Well, when you say 50 to $100 million, it's not to go buy real estate. It's to go buy the equity in real estate. Okay. What's so it's all leveraged. That 50 to $100 million is highly leveraged going in there. So it may be, you know, you may put only 10% of the value of the property down. Okay. But we had a period where we, in 76, the real estate business was coming out of a downturn where we had RTC, right. the government, and they were foreclosing everything in the world. Well, I could go buy an apartment project for 10000 a unit. I wouldn't pay more than 10000 a unit for an apartment project, and that's mortgage and equity. I went out here, I got a call from a guy out north of town not long ago, and he has a pretty nice apartment project out there, and he wouldn't sell it to me. I went out and talked to him about it, and I got the price that he wanted for it. I said, my gosh, man, that's 60000 a unit. I only pay ten. <laughs> He said, we're not going to get there, are we? (laughs) 
Did he eventually sell it? Yeah. But anyway, my company grew to the point where I was managing 10,000 apartments, a million square feet of office space, 19 hotels, and about half a million square feet of industrial and about a million square feet of office space. Good Lord. So that was my management job. And how long did that last? Hmm? How long did that last? You, I sold, sold the company. I sold my equity in it in 82. Okay. So that was a pretty challenging time in interest rates as well, as from what I remember. Well, it's right after Carter. And we know where Carter went. He went to 18% interest. Well, I was a mortgage banker then. And boy, it was tough to do an 18% mortgage bet so. on a new building right. or an old building. So we came up with what's called a wraparound mortgage. Yes. You know what that I is? I do. We came up with that theory. Okay. And so it really worked well. And believe it or not, as a mortgage banker, I did better during Carter's years than I did any other years. Really? In my life. <laughs> so... Did you do residential properties with no. wraparounds or no. commercial or both? Only commercial. Okay. I never did residentials. Okay. I've had a lot of people try to sell me subdivisions, but I didn't want a subdivision. Mm -hmm. I wanted, you know, apartment projects or office space or hotels. Let's go back to, we've covered a lot of ground actually, That, um, but let's figure out how you, or tell us how you got to the point of, managing hotels and having large payrolls to make so where were you born mangrum oklahoma mangrum mangrum yeah mangrum, in the depression in a shack with a doctor that came out that was drunk really? <laughs> and my mother and dad are both good baptists never had a drink in their life right my dad said if you'll never take a drink you won't know you don't want it. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty good advice. <laughs> Did he give you any other good advice growing up? Uh, he was a Baptist deacon. He was a union man. Which uh, union? Uh, he worked for Mrs. Tucker Sharton. He was a chemist Okay. with Mrs. Tucker Sharton. And I don't know what union it was. But I tell you some funny stories about it. Uh, when I was working on my degrees, I became a professor at SMU. Then they didn't pay professors a whole lot of money. So we had to take side jobs. I would take mediation and arbitration jobs. And I had one, and I should have no-bid the job, but I went ahead and did it. But it was a guy out of my dad's union that was in a fight with management. And you know, the union was on his side, management was against him right but anyway i listened to the thing and a rule against the the union mm -hmm. i thought the union was wrong right. i could call home my dad would answer the phone and he'd answer the phone and say hazel this is for you <laughs> <laughs> he would not right. for one year he would not talk to me really because i rule in favor of management that's the hardest thing to do about making any decision is, is looking at things objectively and then making you want a decision that 
would go against you or your interest just because it's the right decision. Yeah. And, you know, I ran across mm -hmm. that a few times in the fire department with, you know, this, nobody liked this guy, everybody liked this guy, but, and so there was a conflict or something and you'd have to decide or whatever on something. And if this instance, the guy that nobody liked was in the right and, you know, you had to make a decision about something, then that's what you did. It's and hard to make it. You pissed off the good guys, the guys you liked. <laughs> It's hard to do, wasn't it? Yes, it was. But, it was if, hard, you, but if you didn't make it, chaos right. was created. Because the next guy, whether they were two liked each other, mm -hmm. they'd want you to rule the same time way right. next time. Yeah. Right. Well, you ruled that way last time. Right. So <laughs> history says I'm right. Right. Whether you're right or wrong, history says I'm right. Right. So... After a year, did your dad come oh, he, around? Oh, he kind of came around. And said, okay, yeah. Well, did he ever think you did the right thing? Or did he no. finally? He just, you know, still, you should have rolled the it. other way. I got it you. just went out of our uh, portfolio. I got you. We dropped the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you were born in the Depression in Oklahoma. What was your life like growing up? Is it, you have brothers and sisters? I had one brother. He got killed in a car wreck when he was a freshman at Austin College. Really? Yeah. It was a freak car accident. He got into building, buying and building hot rods. Mm -hmm. And they were in a hot rod that would run like the devil. But he, was in, he and two other kids were in a park, driving through a park. And it was raining, and the car slid into a tree. They didn't have seat belts in it. Okay. So it flew out and broke his neck. Oh, good grief. He's the only one who got a scratch in that. Wow. I bet that was hard on well, you and your folks. And I can assure you that any time parents lose a kid, it doesn't go away. No, that's for sure. It's there the rest of their life. Some marks never heal over. No, that does not heal. And they live to be in their 90s. But they never got over that. Right. Did it change their relationship with you? Um, no, I was in the military then. Okay. And I was stationed in uh, Verona, Italy. And I did get to come home. Of the three years I was in the military there, that was the uh, only time I got to come home. What, um, what branch of the military were you in? And what was your assignment in? Growing up in a city like Sherman, they know everything about you. So you get exemptions all the way through college. But they know the day you graduate. Okay. The, the military. That is that what you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, the draft board. Okay. No, the day I graduated, I got my notice. Oh, really? No, I thought, I don't have anything else to do. I don't have a job. So I'll just go to the military. It's the best three years I've ever spent. And what year was that? I went in in 1950, no, 1957. Okay. And I got out in 1960. And it was Army? Army. Army. And what was your assignment? <laughs> Were you... Uh... <laughs> I was in Quartermaster, but I, I became a pretty good golfer. There's a general on the 
that ran the whole sea tower. Uh-huh. And uh, he played golf with people from all other branches of the army in there. Mm-hmm. They'd come in right. and go play with them. So I was playing golf one day, and I was playing in front of him. And after I got through, he said, I want you to be in my office in the morning. And I thought, I'm going, to, right. I'm going to jail in the morning. I went in there and he said, I've talked to your, uh, I've talked to Captain Christensen, who's your commander, and I'm going to sign you to my staff. Being reassigned. So, and was, what was he most impressed with, your long game or your short game or all, just whatever? No. I was a private at that point, a PFC and then a specialist. So I could play with him, but I could never tell anyone my rank oh. <laughs> or what my job was. <laughs> so I, I played with these guys. That were, they were not bad golfers, but I could beat them pretty easy. Right. Because most of them, you know, most of them were bird colonels and one-star generals and things and they didn't get to play as much as I did. Right. I played all day long every day. Really? Wow. Well, That's a sweet gig. So I had a tough job there. <laughs> if you weren't golfing, what would your assignment been like in real life? If you weren't like a master golfer, what would you have been doing instead? In the life or in the army? No, in that. In the army? In the army there. Well, I was a company clerk for a while. Okay. Uh, when they, when he took me out and moved me over to his staff, I was a company clerk. So I did all the morning things for the the, the captain. And I, I probably just worked for a captain. Right. I uh, talked to a guy not that long ago that was in the Marines and he ended up being on the uh, softball team. Oh, really? After, and now he, he did some active duty and so he was, I guess he tried out at least one other time, maybe twice, and didn't get it. By the time he did get it, he was thrilled to, to get that. But he said they were, uh, they were a pretty competitive bunch. Yes, they were. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's interesting all the things that might turn up to be available in your life and even when you're in the military or something yeah. like that there's but it, all it, sorts of gigs yeah but it was fun job yeah. I, I enjoyed every minute of it right they have some good golf courses where you were at they were not great golf courses but they were fair yeah you know italy and and greece and all those countries over there they didn't have good golf courses okay. played a golf course with him one time in greece and there were olive trees growing all the way down the fairway. Oh, really? <laughs> if you hit into an olive tree, you got to drop. Okay. <laughs> and then... Olive trees can get pretty big. Yeah. A lot of the courses we played, sheep maintained them. Oh, yeah, there you go. Keeping it tight. <laughs> Keeping yeah. it the fairways. So you had to watch where your ball fell. I'll bet so. <laughs> I'll bet so. You got the right to clean it up. So when you got out in uh, 1960, what were your plans? I, went, I was looking for a job. So had I'm, you already been to college? I'd already been to college. Okay, so I'd go, you didn't I, get drafted I, out of high school. 
No, I, I've been to college. Okay. But I only had a four-year degree. Only a four-year degree? Yeah. And what was that degree in? Business. I went to, I went the engineering route to business. I, my dad said, I'll pay your way through college if you become a lawyer, a doctor, or an engineer. I didn't want any one of the three of them. Right. So my senior year in college, I went from an electrical engineering degree to a BBA degree. Okay. And where was that at? Where did you go to college? Then I was going to North Texas. Okay. I got two years at Parrish Junior College on a basketball scholarship. Played basketball, golf. What What else have you played at, not, at a high good. level? I'm not good at anything. <laughs> I can't make a goal right now because I don't have the strength to push the ball to uh-huh. the to the rim. Did you play basketball or any sports in high school? Yeah. Did you? Every, whatever there came along, track, yeah. football, basketball, baseball. Yeah, whatever real, you play. Everything. Was it a small? But I, I was going to a reasonably small school. Yes. Yeah, Sherman. So, you know, you didn't have to be a you know, <laughs> Herschel Walker right. Everybody to play played football everything. or yeah. anything. I gotcha. What did you like the best? Did you have a... I liked basketball better than the others. Really? In, High school, and that's what I worked on the most. Gotcha. But uh, I liked all of them. Good. I got both collarbones broken at the same time in a football game. Really? And the thing, that wasn't bad. The thing that was bad was that's when, you know, you only had one jersey. Okay. And they wanted to save that jersey. (laughs) And taking that jersey off with two broken collarbones was not any fun. Goodness. I'll bet not. The Army, I got an offer from the Federal Reserve Bank. I went to work at the bank. I'm just curious. How does that happen? So you got out of the Army and... I started looking for a job. Okay. So So I sent resumes to people. Okay. And the Federal Reserve called me. I was in Col- in uh, Golden, Colorado when they called me because I had an offer from Coors Porcelain Company mm-hmm. in Golden. And it was a pretty good offer. But I thought, do I want to live in Golden, Colorado the rest of my life? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Not is it so- a small town? I've, the only way is I've heard nowhere, uh, anything about it is from no, it's the a, Coors. It's small. That's where Coors is. Right. It, it's not a small town, but it's not a big town. Right. Either. Just not where you wanted to be. No. So anyway, I, I was about to make a decision to take that job, and I got a call from the Federal Reserve Bank. Well, I knew I'd much rather learn about centralized banking than I had making a porcelain cap. Gotcha. Yeah. So I took the banking job. Okay. I bet that was more interesting. It was yeah. interesting. I remember funny things down there. Yeah. I was down there when uh, Kennedy got elected. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy had advocated all the way through his campaign, I'm going to improve the unemployment number. Because okay. the unemployment number then, was they thought was bad. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really bad based on what we see today. The second day after he was president, we got a new formula. <laughs> he didn't say how he was going to improve employment. <laughs> but the papers all immediately came out. 
Kennedy's been in one weekend already and proved proud, <laughs> unemployment. Man. Just I'm, that fast. <laughs> that quick. I bet you met some interesting people at, uh, with a job like that and clearly did some, got to ride in, around in black cars and scare well, the dickens out of uh, bankers on Friday. Well, you met a lot of pretty important bankers. Yeah. Our, my job is first year with the Federal Reserve was meeting the president of the bank. Right. <laughs> I, rep, I, I met more tellers than no, I did it. presidents. Yeah. I'm actually reading a book currently about the Federal Reserve and uh, the history of the Federal Reserve, how it was ena enacted and uh, how, it, how it works with the reserve banks. And what do you think about where the Federal Reserve, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I mean. Well, back when RTC was getting in things, and things were really a crisis, and security houses were going busted. The reason the security houses went busted is the Federal Reserve Bank shut their window down. And their window mean, meaning their ability to... No, it's where you go borrow money. From That's, the Federal Reserve. Yeah, if you have a bank, and you could go borrow a trillion dollars from Federal Reserve overnight right. if you had a big enough balance sheet of your bank. Mm -hmm. It was normally short-term money, overnight, overnight. money, two-day money. Mm -hmm. But the Federal Reserve shut it down and wouldn't let Morgan Stanley and I think Merrill Lynch and one other. They went to the window to get their money, and there's no money there for them. No notice anything, just like just, just the windows closed. closed. Sorry, windows closed today. I bet that did. Well, hell, that made, that, that made the market fall off the bottom mm -hmm. because that short-term money was very important to banks because mm -hmm. all banks do the same thing. Right. They, they take their deposits, the amount of money that you've deposited there, that money doesn't just sit there. Right. They, they take and loan it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if they get a run on their short-term money and it you know, sucks them down, until they can recover from that, they've got to go to the window and get some more money to cover that, or the bank is put out of business. Right. You know, when a customer walks up to a bank and says, I want to get my $10,000, I have deposited it here, mm -hmm. and they say, we don't have $10,000 today. What do you think is going to happen? That news gets around quick. Not only will that customer go, every other customer in that bank will be over there that day saying, I want my money back. What was their reasoning for doing that with no I, notice? I've never heard of a reason. Really? I've read a lot of history books and everything, but I can't figure out why that happened. So now, they opened it up later in the day. The day it was shut down in the morning, mm -hmm. later in the day they did open it up because they saw that they had created a <laughs> landslide. Right. They were, the Federal Reserve will, if they make a mistake, they'll recover from their mistake. Do you think that Powell, he started raising interest rates in, I believe, 2019, and was kind of, and then the stuff with COVID hit, and then that threw everything to the wind. So is he trying to pick up his playbook from then and just trying to kind of finish what he had started? No inflation started then. The only reason he's doing what he's doing is his theory, and I guess it's the right theory. I'm not smart enough to debate him, 
he thinks if he can increase interest, tighten the money up some, he'll slow the economy down and will slow inflation down. My theory is if you increase the cost of money, you increase the cost of inflation and you slow business. It will slow business will down. Slow. slow business down. Yeah. We didn't see a lot of construction going on when Carter got 18% interest. I bet not. Not much was being built. No. You couldn't. Yeah. You couldn't make your numbers work. Yeah. So people just didn't work then, especially construction and builders and things. What were you thinking when Yellen and everybody was uh, talking about things being transitory? Well, it's just going to be transitory inflation. It's not going to, you know, the price of... I didn't know there was a transitory inflation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you? No, I, I have it no. doesn't seem that way. I mean, have you tried to go to the grocery store? or well, what? I mean, In it's... the economic books I've read, I've never seen a paragraph in there that said transitory inflation. Right. Do any of those guys like do their own grocery shopping or you know anything like that? They don't. They don't. They're do so it. separated. They don't from have that. to. They've, they've got people that do that for them. Yeah. So it's not hurting them any. They don't. And I don't know what kind of a bonus plan they're on right. for <laughs> their costs when they're in in session. Good grief. I don't know, but I'm sure. I'm sure they don't go to a grocery store. Yeah. If they went to a grocery store, they'd have to take 10 security guards with them. <laughs> It'd be yeah. like Biden going to a grocery right. store. Right. Um, Biden might be safer than they are at a grocery so. store. Yeah, depending on where he went. Depending on where he went. But, um, all right, so we've got you through your, in with the Federal Reserve, and did you go from the Federal Reserve into your... Real estate management career? No. What happened over there? I went from Federal Reserve to college radio. I went back to engineering. Okay. And I did really well at, um, at Collins because I had a master's degree then in business. And I was the only one, believe it or not, out of 5,000 employees that had a, an advanced business degree in that company. A little man, Collins, kind of liked me, mm -hmm. and he came. He was building a computer that will today do the same thing that probably what you're carrying in your briefcase. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was an all-purpose computer. Yeah. I mean, he, but you had to write every program for it. Okay, that's before you could go buy package programs. Mm -hmm. So we were putting together programs for him. And building a computer. Wow. And so I did that for a long time. I did that for four years. And did really well with Collins. I was happy with them. And then uh, some guys in Collins came by my office one day and said, we're developing software to do automated design of printed circuit boards. All the two from wiring and a printed circuit board. Do it in a computer and print the artwork off on a CRT. Well, that sounded interesting. And they said, we're about 60, 70% with our, with our program, but we need a couple of things. One, we need someone 
that will come in and raise money for us, get investors in it. Right. And he said, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to offer you a deal that you've got to take. We're going to offer you 125000 a year. Now it's making 14000 Yeah. <laughs> we're going to give you a car. We're going to give you a credit card. And the only thing you've got to do is take this company public in New York. What the hell, I know how to do that. And how did you know how to do that? Just through your For, master's degree and yeah, just studying that? Yeah. Okay, you, just, you knew the, how, the, how it worked. Yeah, okay. I knew how the securities exchange worked. Okay. And I knew how, what I had to put together. And so I worked uh, three years for them. And uh, uh, I got the thing public. In fact, I thought I'll never have another broke day in my life. Really? Because the stock options they gave me uh-huh. at 26, 27, 28 years old mm-hmm. was worth $9 million. Good Lord Almighty. I thought, I'll never have another broke day. But I brought my company public and over the over the counter market. Mm-hmm. And a group of New York Jewish fellows shorted my company, the whole offering. Really? Not just half of it, not 10%, shorted the whole was, offering. Was that directed at... Is that just their gig? They shorted new IPOs, and that was just their deal to try to... That was their gig. Okay. Well, I spent all of my $9 million, but about a half a million dollars beating them. Really? But I beat their short. And I, I understand short selling, and I, I just... Are you buying it? Are you buying stock back that they're... I'm keeping the price above the short. Okay. Wherever they shorted, I wanted that price above it every day. So they had to put more money in the pot every day. Okay. And that's how you wear them out. So were you, was there anybody else doing this with you? Helping keeping the stock up? Yeah, I had a lot of people. Okay. A lot of allies. So we finally beat them. How long did something like that take? It took about nine months. But anyway, we got it, got through that. And our, our system was working real good then because we were getting to the point where we were doing about 90% connections on printed circuit boards. And that's a big, big number mm-hmm. because that meant for them, to, for the, uh, I can't take the name of the group that did it, for the artists to come back and do engineers come back to do the last 10 percent okay they could hardwire and so it works out real well and ti got on to it okay and they liked it <laughs> and they came see i can't think of the guy's name now but he was uh chairman was uh ex-mayor of dallas real well-known guy but i can't think of his name He's the first one that contacted Stimmons, Was Stimmons a mayor? Uh, has he got a, got a highway named after him in Dallas, probably? Probably, but. <laughs> so. But anyway, they ended up buying us out. And so, after I bought it out, I got into the uh, construction business. And I started building tilt-up walls, tilt-up wall, exposed aggregate warehouses. Okay. 
And the biggest one I built was 144,000 square feet. Really? But most of my business plan basically was to build five to 10,000 foot ones, get a customer in it, and sell it. Okay. Because I, I, I always, all the time I was in that business, I was chasing money. Okay. And so to keep my business going, I had to get one up, get it leased, get it sold, start the next one. So I did that for several years. And then I met this girl I liked that she was, believe it or not, vice president of a construction company. Mm -hmm. And I ended up marrying her. What year was this? 72, I think. 1972. <laughs> Got a lot done in uh, getting out of the military in 1960 in between... 1972. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, she introduced me to a guy named Glenn Justice. Glenn Justice was a mortgage banker. And he taught me into working with him. So I was a mortgage banker for about three or four years. And that got me around to 76 mm -hmm. when they changed the tax act. Right. So I went and talked to Glenn, told him what I was going to do. And he said, Jump on it. So Sounds like you've had a lot of good business partners yeah. over the years. And we'll take you through a series now. Okay. That, that I don't know whether I want to go there or not, but I will. Okay. Uh, I got I took a little small business and got started just raising money out the kazoo. Well, I got the SEC on me. That was the dumbest thing that ever happened to me. But the SEC put me through 90 days of depositions. Really? And the guy, the SEC guy said to me, on the last day of the deposition, he said, I haven't been able to prove it, but I know you're a crook. And I said, what gave you the first clue? He said, I looked at my income tax return, and I looked at your income tax return, I've got an MBA. You got an MBA, but you did do some PhD work. And I know you can't make as much money as you're making when I'm only making what I have. Uh -huh. So I said to him, I said, Do you have any liabilities? And he said, Yeah. I pay on a car, a house, I've got two kids in school. I said, Let me tell you where I am in my business career. I'm personally on probably two or three hundred billion dollars of notes. Now, if 10% of those notes go south, I'm not going to be able to pay on my car and my house because I'm not going to have a penny. Yeah. So if you're willing to take a risk with me, I'll bring you in as a 50-50 partner with me, but you've got to take half of the liability. <laughs> And he said, I won't do it. Uh, turn the and, tables on him. Huh? And I said, well, if you're not willing to take the risk, you're never going to get the reward of the penalty. And at the end of the deposition, I got up and walked out. Well, I said to the SEC, are you through with me now? Absolutely. We're through with you. Well, they lied to me. It wasn't the first lie. Mm -hmm. but, and they were crooks. When I would do discovery with them, I had the right to go through their file cabinets at what information they had. Mm -hmm. So I took eight CPAs, 
four secretaries and a printing machine and went to their files. And I'd go through one of their file cabinets and get out of it what I wanted, copy it, go to the next file. Well, the next day I would come back and look at that first file cabinet. They had taken all the shit out of there really? that I had interviewed and looked through mm -hmm. and put new stuff in it. Yeah, dummy so, stuff or replacement no, stuff? No, they, they're trying to hide stuff. Right. But anyway, when they told me that they were through with me, they lied to me because they turned me over to the Justice Department. And I don't know whether you remember Jim Roth. I remember that name. He was, he's from here. Well, Jim Roth and I played basketball together in high school. He was a U.S. attorney here. I went and talked to Jim. Jim recommended to the Justice Department that they pass on me. He said, I don't, he said, I don't think you have a case. Although he wouldn't pass on me. Okay. So they indicted me on 12 counts of tax fraud. And the reason they chose tax fraud was in the SEC deposition, they said to me one time, the reason we don't like you is the amount of money that you have taken out of the government's coffers by giving a two-for-one tax write-off. So you've cost us billions of dollars. And so they didn't like that. So anyway, they indicted me. I did some research. and The majority of the cases that, that defendants lose against the government is because they don't have the money to defend themselves. Correct. Right. I had the money. I hired a, a New York attorney named Lou Bender that was number one against the government. And it was not cheap. I spent, I think, 90 days in, in court with them, but we beat them. The jury said I was innocent. Now, I don't get a penny of my money back, Right. but I spent $2 million to de defend myself or something that they knew I had not done. Yeah. What does that do to your your nights of your sleepless nights and to your family and to you know just your health and everything like you that? You don't believe it or not, it didn't bother me. Really? I don't know whether I don't have a conscience or what, but it didn't bother me. I knew that we were right, and I knew that Bender could put his story. Because he was good. Yeah. I just felt like I was going to win all the time. Right. And I did. i tell you what it did to me. It absolutely made me hate the government system. Right. And I can take you through the things I hate in it. Number one is a grand jury. Okay. You know what's wrong with the grand jury? If, you, if the prosecutor decides he's going to come and get you for something, you may not have done one thing wrong, but the only person that gets to go before the grand jury and present their case is the prosecutor. prosecutor. Okay. You may stand outside of the grand jury room, but they will not let you in there. One night I went to a party in Dallas, as well after my case, and there was a judge there, and I got started talking to him. He said, I'm going to impound the grand jury tomorrow. And I said, you know what? That grand jury is the stupidest way 
the new law I've ever heard of in my life. And I told him my plan. The next day, I was over the grand jury. <laughs> <laughs> I spent six months on the Dallas grand jury. Really? So did that increase your hatred for the process or do any? No, it didn't increase. You may know that my boss there was Hugh Lucas. You know him? No, sir. He lived right down here on Mill Run. Okay. But he, he was my boss on the grand jury. Okay. But then they were doing things wrong, and Hugh and I argued about it all the time. <laughs> if they picked some kid up that had one joint, they prosecuted him. Wow. And I kept saying, Hugh, that's dumb. It's yeah. stupid. Yeah. You ought to be, if you're going to prosecute someone, they should be a distributor, a seller, or a provider. Go after the big guys. Yeah. Why, why go after this kid? Yeah. Why give him three years right. for carrying a joint? And Hugh and I could never agree on that. But then Hugh, living, living down here, when I, when I had the place out here on 450, mm -hmm. and... Uh, I had a guy working for me named David Carnes, and he was a good dozer guy. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't good. We went that by Hugh's place down there one afternoon. Hugh had a little tractor out there trying to push a stump out of the field. Mm -hmm. So I pull up here and says, Hugh, I've got a dozer and a trailer over here. I'll go get it. We can push that out that quickly. No, I'm going to get it out. Well, we left. He turned the tractor over on him. Oh. And hurt, broke, I don't know what, whether it broke his back or what. Yeah. But he was in a wheelchair from then until he died. Good grief. Nice guy. I liked Hugh, even though he was a Dallas DA. My son worked for the Dallas DA really? for a long time. Where is, what does he do now? He has a law practice in Dallas. Okay. But it's kind of a different practice. The only cases he does or adoption cases, mm -hmm. or adoption cases that have gone south. Okay. You know, like whoever put the adoption together, you've got to get, there's really a lot of work in doing an adoption. Because mm -hmm. everybody that's ever been involved with that child better be on the adoption list. Okay. And a lot of times before, if the mother went off and got pregnant, had the baby, never went back to the okay. husband again. Or, yeah boyfriend, whatever he was. And then she put that up for adoption. If the adoption attorney did not get the consent of that guy, he could come back in and take the child back. I got you. So primarily David does court cases now for that. Do you have any other He's, children? Well, I have a daughter. She's a real estate agent with Ibby Holiday. Okay. And I've got Hunter. And then David has two kids. One is a girl that just graduated from the University of Michigan. Really? I would like to tell you what she does, but I don't understand it. Okay. <laughs> She's doing research in the Jerusalem-Palestinian problem. Mm -hmm. She spends a lot of time in Jerusalem. Right. But she works, I think, I don't even know who her boss is, but I think it's the government. And then Charlie is... Uh, senior at LSU this year and he's gonna be a he's gonna be an attorney 
you know, he just got back from Vegas. I heard I'm, that. He told me I'm that. I'm surprised he didn't want to come by and borrow money. I <laughs> <laughs> can tell you a funny story about gambling. All right. I want to hear it. Uh, when I was working for Collins, I was making 10000 a year. Okay. Well, if you had put up a $5,000 credit line in Vegas, your airplane ticket was paid for, your hotel was paid for, your food was paid for, your entertainment was paid for, if you draw that $5,000 down. Okay. And then they didn't check you whether you really gambled the 5000 It's not like now. Okay. They can tell you right now to the penny how much money you spend. So I'd take advantage of it. I went out there, um, and the first night, I was down $9,882. <laughs> making $10,000. Well, I thought I'd go home. So instead of going, working my markers out, I, I just went home. I knew they'd come see me. Right. About two weeks later, they called me. They said, we're in Dallas today. We just happened to be in Dallas. So anyway, they said, oh, we're, we're going to come out to your office and talk to you. I said, no, you're not. I'll meet you down at North Park Inn. Okay. Went down there. I had child support that I was paying then, and I had some other obligation, you know, car and things I was paying on. Uh, so I took a list of that. I took my tax return, took my W-2. I said, okay, guys, you can do to me whatever you want to do, but here are the numbers. Yeah. You look at them, and you tell me what part of the pie you want for me to pay off my note with you. <laughs> and they said, okay. So we agreed on a number. Okay. They left me a stack of envelopes about that big. Yeah. And said, don't be late. I said, I'm not going to be late. I'll pay, I'll pay that. So I paid for it, paid on it about six months. And they called me. They said, why don't you come out and play with us again? <laughs> so I went out there. The very first, within two hours after I'd gotten in there, I was up $12,000. Right. I took it, <laughs> whatever I owed on my note to the to the office and paid it, took the rest of it, got on an airplane, yeah. and went home. Really? Ah, you, uh, you're, not a, you're not scared to live on the edge. Um, I'll give you that. I don't know that I have that as much in my personality. Um, it's back to the original thing I said to you. Be risk-oriented, but know what your risk is. Yeah. How severe is the risk? Now, if the risk is grossly severe, you pass on it. Yeah. But if it's only like 10 or 20% risk, that the risk is going to happen to you, mm -hmm. you take that risk. Have you gotten better at judging risk? Um, Over the years? I'm not you... doing a whole lot anymore. I, I decided the economy was going to the dogs. So I have made my life a cash life. Mm -hmm. And it, maybe it's because I'm a prostitute. But always in economic times in the past, uh -huh. when we have a deep problem like that, like when the RTC came in, mm -hmm. that's when I took advantage of buying apartments and things because right. I could buy them cheap. 
if I, I'm into a point where if things get low, prices get back very competitive. Right now, land is not competitive. Right. You can't find a thing in Henderson County less than 10,000 an acre. Right. Well, I bought 1,000 acres down south of town for 1,000 an acre in 1979. Right. 10,000 an acre? That's a big <laughs> inflation from 1,000. That is. So if it happens again, I'm going to buy things. Do you think we're headed towards something like that? General, you know, in the, uh, I mean, I know you've you've been a big proponent of Henderson County, um, and that's pretty small geographical area. But where do you think we're headed? Maybe Henderson County, then Texas, then the U.S. Well, I think the best areas to be in. Of Florida, Texas, those would be the two key areas I'd go to. Okay. See, the biggest part of the product, what I bought in, in apartments, were in Florida. Oh, really? I probably had 6,000 units in Florida. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it was Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. Um, I got as far as South Carolina. Mm -hmm. What about today, these days? What do you mean, what about it? I um, still think that... Those are the two best places to be. Okay. Yeah. You know, I realize there are soft places in Texas now, mm -hmm. but there's not many places that are really soft. And if you look at the volume of people coming out of California mm -hmm. and New York to either Florida or Texas, right? the values have got to stay pretty flat here. Right. They're not going to dip, you know, I'd be afraid to buy something in California. Mm -hmm. The number of people going out, the number of businesses. I, I saw the other day the number of businesses that had left California, and it was a staggering number. Right. And we're not talking about small companies. Mm -hmm. Tesla. Yeah. A lot of big companies are moving out. I just think they're making, I think the whole California state right. is, is too liberal. They're not uh, nearly tough enough on criminals. Right. And I think the whole thing is going to have a hard, they're going to have a harder time recovering if we have a recession in Florida and Texas ever thought about. I don't, I don't think these two states will have a problem. I mean, I know there's a definition of recession. Uh, to me, <laughs> It's hard to determine, you know, is it a recession when you go to the, you're paying twice, a month, twice as much for groceries as you were a year ago? I mean, that to me is kind of a recession. Well, do you know the definition of a it's, recession and depression? It's a simple definite, definition. Is it two straight quarters of declining? No. Okay, I, I think I know where you're going with this. Tell me the difference. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Right. A depression is when you lose your job. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But and you're, you're right. Two, two, two quarters of non yeah. non growth is usually a sign. You still bullish on Henderson County? Yeah. yeah. Like where it's at, where it's going, or well. Growing up around Dallas, if you talk to someone in Dallas about moving to East Texas, mm -hmm. they don't ever talk to you about Van Zandt County, 
Anderson County or any others, it's Henderson County. Really? And if you look out here on the lake, mm -hmm. at those houses that are building $5 million houses, someone from the Metroplex is still hot on Henderson right. County. Got some apartments going up out there too. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of things being built. Yeah, uh, there are. You know where David Daniels' nursing home is out there, yeah. don't you? Mm -hmm. They're building apartments, apartments right across the street. Right. But you know, Henderson County, I don't know why, they have that uh, permit guy that uh, he worked here, and I don't know whether they fired him or he left, but he went to Dallas. Mm hmm. When he went to Dallas, he worked in the same division in Dallas. But he bought Dallas' book back on what needs to be done for a city. Okay. It doesn't work in a small town. Hmm. You know, to, get a, to get a permit now is hard here. No, we, we moved to Athens in 88, and I, and I don't know that many people, business people, but I've never heard anybody that, that I didn't, don't know anybody that even says, oh, it was okay, you know, dealing with the city, getting this built or that built. I mean, everybody I know is just, like, was, it was terrible. You know, I'll, I have no desire to do it and again. And there's no reason for it. There is no, I mean, that just... Yeah. You know, obviously you want inspectors make you build a building that's going to last mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily have to make the builder build it where it's going to last 500 years right. right there's just so much rebar and so much concrete you mm -hmm. can use yeah that, that whatever you use in excess of that is money I wonder, I wonder why the big wigs allow that to go on because we don't have any big wigs <laughs> in in athens you know, used to, we had a bunch of old gurus around here, yeah. and I knew most of them. Used to play gin with them all the time. That ran the city, but they ran the city pretty well like it should have been run. Right now, we've had people, i got to be careful, we have people that was the ex-mayor of uh, Athens that got involved with economic development. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you how bad that was. Every time a company came to town to get an economic development loan, he would bring it to me before he took it to this committee mm -hmm. and say, now this looks like a deal you and I should do. I'm not going to mention his name, but I'd say, buddy, that is a conflict of interest that could possibly get us both put in jail. If it was a deal I could make fifty million off of, no. I'd pass it. You've been that route before, or accused of being that sort of thing before. That will get you in trouble. Yeah. And then you know we have a mayor now that's not really a mayor. We what do, do have, we do have some people I think are pretty smart around here. Mm -hmm. I think Bill Jackson runs the appraisal district. He is about as smart at that as anybody I've run across in, really? in that field. Yeah, there's good people everywhere yeah they but just, he has to deal with the city that's frustrating it is I mean, frustrating but who would want to be mayor of city who would who do you know that you think is very smart that's got the backbone to stand up for what's right for the city that will run for mayor
I was going to say, I was looking for you till you threw that last, I was looking at you till you threw that last little I qualifier run, in there. I wouldn't run for mayor or anything. I'd get shot the second day. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me. In fact, I almost got shot over all those fast food places that went in up Tyler. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wayne Weeks and I took a moment at that. What we took them on over was they're not building the things right because of, you're going to flood 31. Okay. You can't put that much concrete mm -hmm. in that area and not have runoff. Right. Well, they did make them put retaining lakes in. Yeah, I saw Those that. retaining lakes are not big enough to hold anything. That, it looks like a big little or a small little pond, but it fills up pretty quick. Oh, yeah. In fact, I bet it's full now. It may be. Yeah. It may be from that Some, little rainstorm. But anyway, I think they got started having meetings and didn't tell Wayne and I where we were going. <laughs> <laughs> Been excluded from the group, huh? Do you... So how many grandkids do you have? I have four. Okay. One great. One great. Mr. Jack, if you were... You mentioned earlier about, you know, you wish you could have learned something or learned things about your great-grandparents, ancestors, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. If 20 years from now, Mr. Jack's listening to this and whoever else might be born in the meantime, what would you like to tell them about yourself, about your life, or how, to, how they you might live there? You ought to sit down writing a book. I thought about writing a book. And you could talk it out and then have mm -hmm. somebody transcribe that. You know, some people find that easier. Yeah. yeah. You know, just tell the stories. Yeah. You would like that. Yeah. And I uh, bet other people would as well. Mm -hmm. So you asked me yeah. about kind of what that, what this podcast is about. And, and I think that's part of it is just letting, hearing your interesting stories, getting a chance to sit down for a little bit and, you know, to hear your actual voice. I mean, I have my um, grandfather on my mother's side was Irish descent, and I've heard about the way his voice sounded, and he died when I was a, just before my senior year in high school. I, I couldn't tell you the sound of his voice. I would love to have something, you know, an old cassette or something of him just telling a story and uh, talking about his life. So I think one of my problems I had with talking more about that was my dad had a brother and a sister. Their father liked the daughter and liked the daughter's kids much better. In fact, my grandfather did not like my mother. Okay. Evidently, he thought my dad shouldn't have married her, but anyway, he didn't like my mother. So I, I, I didn't deal much with him because I didn't like him. Right. I didn't want to go sit down and talk to him. Yeah. We, he and I probably would have gotten in an argument over something yeah. that would have ended any ability for either <laughs> one of us to talk to him. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there are personalities. Uh, yeah. and so, but with my uh, mother's mother and dad, I, I like them and I, I spent a lot of time with them. Really? You remember, th you remember, remember about the, the stuff y'all did? What did they do? Where did, uh, I remember things about them. They lived in the country, had a two-older. 
<laughs> had two what? Two holer. Oh, really? Mountain bike <laughs> with a Sears and Roebuck catalog. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you did they have, uh, uh, do you remember running water, indoor no, plumbing, no, uh, no. air conditioning? No. They had a well, a hand crank well, mm-hmm. out behind their house that they got the water from. And it was a shallow well. Obviously, yeah. probably a 200 foot well. Okay. But that's where the water came from. Mm-hmm. The portalette was right. outside. Yeah. Uh, no electricity. And I didn't think those times were that tough. It's just what you knew, right? Yeah. What you knew. Yeah. It's, uh... Where they lived, they didn't have any of that. We lived in town, and we had a indoor plumbing and electricity. Okay. We did not have air conditioning. Right. Eventually, evaporated fans came in, mm-hmm. and the only thing they did is just took air and run it over water. Right. It would cool some. Yeah. But I remember we the house we lived in in Denison had a, a screened-in back porch. Mm-hmm. And in the summertime, my brother and I slept out there. Well, it had mosquitoes. And I remember my mother getting a can of DDT. Oh, really? <laughs> the good stuff. It, just spray <laughs> us. <laughs> I might have been a rocket scientist. <laughs> yeah, that was the good stuff back then, wasn't yeah. it? I like to sit back and, and think about, I mean, we always had air conditioning and stuff, but I I like hearing those stories because it makes me see how far we've come um, in not really that long of a period of time. But it's also how far we've <laughs> kind of fallen back I mean it's just as a population or as a maybe even as a as the human race at least in our part of the world uh, has kind of gotten soft I think it's gotten soft but I heard a report the other day that projected what had happened to humanity from 35 to 95 Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen from 95 forward? There's supposed to be more changes in the, in the 20, 22, 25, 28 than what we've ever seen all the way up to now. Right. So you just think to yourself, what kind of changes could they be talking about? Right. The things that are going on now, I don't like. I don't like the computers. Right. I'm, I can write you a Fortran program. If right, you, like. you were you were a big computer bigwig back in the '60s. Yeah. But I I, can, I don't even turn one on anymore. Yeah, I don't care. The biggest thing I've got is a Hewlett Packard calculator right. that can do everything I want. <laughs> everything. You run I all want. your financial calculator and everything. You got yeah. calculations. Yeah. I've got one at home. I I've never sat down and learned how to actually use it. But I'm, I don't want to get rid of it. <laughs> you can do present day value, future value, mm-hmm. anything you want to do. Right. What do you think about investment opportunities going forward? Do you still like real estate? And, or is it just... No, well, real estate something that's not going to grow. The population, you know, there, 
there's a theory, I don't know if you've ever heard the theory or not, it's called the Malthus Economic Theory. I've heard of it. Malthus basically agreed, thought production grows one, two, three, four, five. You know, it can only grow 100%. That's the maximum production can grow. Okay. But population grows two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. So at some point in, in your chart you're going to make, production's going to be down here and requirements going to be up here way ahead of Diverging. It. Yeah. So the world will eventually starve to death. Now, why hasn't that happened? We all know what has. Civil War, World War Two, World War One, epidemics. Yeah. So all of those have kind of kept population under control some. But if it hadn't been for that, Malthus would have been totally right. How should we live our lives? I will tell you that I think when you think back on things after you get to a certain age, you don't necessarily think about what you've done good, but you think, boy, if I'd made this investment instead of this one, yeah. or if I'd done this and this and this, I passed that one up. I could have, I could have put hundred thousand in that, and worth twenty five million now, but I didn't do it. So you think, you think some of missed opportunity. Yeah. What should we be investing in today? That I really don't know. I don't have the slightest idea. I know I'm not going to invest in Twitter. <laughs> well, it just went private. Elon <laughs> took it private. Yeah, so I'm not going. Can't. I'm not going to invest in this Chinese. Communication system we have, TikTok. Oh, yeah. No. Well, a lot of things I'm not going to do. <laughs> Maybe that's uh, the most but, important. But right now, I really don't want to invest in anything. Just hanging tight. Maybe something will come along that I like. Yeah. Or someone will bring me something that I like. Yeah. But that'd be the only way I'd do it right now. All right. We've been going at it for a good while. I appreciate your time. It's been a lot of interesting things. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had did a you, fun. Did I've you invent a golf club of some sort? Yeah. We haven't heard that. Yeah. Tell us about the golf club that you Well, it invented. was... I invented a golf club. What I did is put a little curve in the face. Okay. And what that does is normally a flat a flat thing like that coming at a round object. Mm -hmm. The object it hits is going to jump. Right. And it may jump 12 inches or 14 inches. And then it gets its overspin. Mm -hmm. Well, if you get overspin on the ball when it comes off the club head, mm -hmm. the ball's going to roll through we, we came up with that, and it was one of those... I, I sold quite a few of them. Of the golf clubs? clubs. Yeah. Okay. But it's one of the things you learn in life. You cannot have a single product company and it work. Yeah. So I had to add new products to it all the time. Mm -hmm. So I added, uh, we talked Corona beer and letting us do all of their advertisement paraphernalia. Mm -hmm. We made golf hats, golf shirts, yeah. made golf clubs that had Corona on the back of them. Okay. And, you know, did all kinds of things. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. But I got Fuzzy Zeller. 
Remember him? Yeah, I do. Got Fuzzy Zeller liking my putter. He was representing Powerbilt. And he talked Powerbilt into buying that putter from me. Oh, really? Yeah. And they were going to produce it. And then Fuzzy and Powerbilt had a falling out. <laughs> and so they, I don't know whether they ever produced it or not. <laughs> well, you sure don't mind taking, taking risks on stuff. Um, but you know, it taught me don't ever have a single product company. If you, I realize a lot of people have done all right with that. Yeah. But how, it, how might that line of thinking or that way of thinking transfer to life in general? Not have a single. No, don't just source. have. Don't have one plan. Gotcha. Don't have one plan. Right. Have an alternative plan. And I'll tell you what I think really helped me more than anything. For about 15 years, on January the 1st every year, I sat down and wrote my goals. Next year, I've got children. Okay. I'd love to see it. This is uh, typed on a thick sheet of paper. 1976 pledge to the coals from the coals and it's a pledge what does the pledge mean to you a goal do you mind if i read a couple of these i don't care it's got a dollar uh, amount goal and number two says in exchange we'll give up time security house and use smart Dated 12-31 of 76. Work better deals. Know that deal will work before spending time. Talks about better builders. And I was a mortgage banker in 76. But believe it or not, the financial goal, mm -hmm. I exceeded it 125000 Really? I believe it. Work each deal the day I get it. Spend less time in office and more time looking at deals. Less split commissions. And this last one, H, is in all caps. Each night, make a list of things to do for tomorrow and accomplish each one. I still do that. You've got two Bible verses at the bottom. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And I have, if ye have faith, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Mr. Charles Cole. Thank you. Thank you for sitting down with us and spending the time. I've enjoyed it. It's, it's been, been an honor. Fun. Been fun. I hope I haven't bored you. No. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. We appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening.